no one's ever going to give you permission to quit your job. Like no one's going to invite you. Your employer isn't going to invite you to quit your job. Your parents aren't going to be like, why don't you just stop with that paycheck and do something else? So if you're, you know, if we're all brought up to need permission to do things, then you just have to be comfortable with giving it to yourself. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. I am so glad you're joining today. I'm your host, Rob Goodman, and we are talking to Wendy Chen today, a woman who has had an incredible career moving from owning one of the most historic record stores in San Francisco, Aquarius Records, to moving to Apple and helping to build the iTunes and app stores. And then realizing that spending all this time kind of promoting art and creativity in musicians and in app developers, she decided to turn the focus inward and go independent and spend a year exploring different mediums as an artist, ultimately landing on her love of knots and rope and fiber and wood. She created the Acclaim series, A Year of Knots, and I'm so excited to have Wendy on the show. So let's get started with the conversation. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Happy to be here. Yeah, so great to have you here. (laughs) Um, Tell me a little bit about what you've been working on at the studio off the bat these past kind of few weeks. I know you work in rope and fiber Mm -hmm. and also in wood. Mm -hmm. So what's been kind of on your radar in terms of projects? It's, it's been a really amazing year. So a bucket list life item I got to check off this year. I had my first fine art gallery exhibit. So that happened in August of, in September of this year. Wow. So actually my studio has been feeling a little empty because I made so much work and then took it all to the gallery and put it up on the walls there. Um, I and, did, and a lot of it didn't come home, meaning it sold. Uh, some of it sold. Some of it sold. That's great. That's a really nice feeling, yeah. right? And yeah. just congratulations on the show. That's incredible. Yeah. Thank you. You know, yeah. it's kind of my first dipping a toe into the fine art world, which is, I really love new worlds in general. Um, and this is a world, right? So I've got my fingers and toes in several different worlds now, but the fine art world is really interesting to me and really good people. So, um, so the studio has been feeling a little empty. Yeah. I usually am surrounded by all of the knots that I made for the year of knots project, which was a project I did in 2016, where I learned and made one new knot every day in wow. 2016. So that's 366 knots on my wall. And I kind of use it as my artist palette. Like when I'm making work and I need a new knot, I just sort of look up. It's like having a box of colors if you're a painter. Wow. So in your studio, They're you'll all see all on the, the knots wall. on the wall. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. How did that project come about? That's that's kind of your first step into the world as an artist. How did you settle on knots and ropes and fiber and kind of what what inspired you to use that medium? Uh, well, it's a little bit of a long story. Can you handle it? I can Ron? handle it. Let's do it. <laughs> so the first thing I did when I quit my corporate job in twenty early 2013 uh, was I knew I wanted to be creative and make work with my hands, but I didn't know what form it would take. So the first thing I did was take a bunch of classes and I cast the net really wide. It was everything from printmaking to weaving to LED lighting and interior design, um, ceramics. I mean, you name it. I took a class in it. And the only two things that stuck were wood carving. And I took a refresher macrame course. And so you if, tried everything. So I you, tried everything. You took every kind of class that you thought you might be interested in medium wise. And you kind of went down the list and 
and where you weren't kind of feeling like, yeah, I want to come back to this. You went on to the next exactly. one. Like you kind of know within the first 10 minutes, half an hour, whether or not you like the feeling of the doing of the thing or not. And if I liked it, I came back and just went further down the rabbit hole and it kind of makes sense. And, but I wasn't able to connect this dot until a year later where that rope and wood were the things that really resonated with me because my father had been a woodworker and my mom had taught me macrame in the seventies. I totally forgotten, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was such a, an anti, like I was such a punk rocker in high school that like anything my dad or mom were doing, I was not interested right, in right. just by default. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet these things came back once I decided that I wanted my life to be about creativity. So they had lain dormant somewhere inside me for a long time. Where did so, you take the classes for, for rope and woodworking? I took the woodworking class at the Crucible, which is that amazing makerspace in Oakland. Oh, like wow. Like hardcore, serious, like maker, like skill-based, okay. like skill learning there. Awesome. You know, they teach um, welding, you know, like yep. major stuff. Yep. Um, and then I took the macrame course at a beautiful boutique that is no longer in the mission, but was at the time. Um, just took a macrame refresher class from Emily Katz, who's very well known in the macrame world for being being a teacher who very generously shares her skills. So I took the macrame refresher class and within five minutes, I remembered how much my hands loved the repetitive motion of the knotting. So I just went down that rabbit hole and kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And after about a year, I had been making, you know, wall hangings and I have a beautiful uh, pendant, macrame pendant light that I make, but everything, especially my wall hangings, they all kind of look the same. And I realized that a lot of macrame, which is having a bit of a moment right now and a resurgence, it all kind of looks really similar. And I literally had a light bulb moment on January 4th. 2016. I was I love in my that you backyard. remember the exact date. And I didn't believe that light bulb moments existed. I thought it was just in the movies or comic books. <laughs> but I literally had one. I was sitting there and I real I was sweeping up the leaves in my backyard or something. And I thought, if I want my work to really express who I am, um, I need more tools. I need more tools in my palette, or if I was a painter, more colors in my toolbox. Mm -hmm. Um, and I realized I just need to learn all the knots. <laughs> And so in a flash, I intuited the self-imposed design restrictions around the project that I would post each knot every day to Instagram to keep myself accountable, but also to build an audience and mm -hmm. to build a dialogue with other people who are into it. Um, photographing the knots, making them in white rope, photographing them on a white background to just kind of... Um, uh, uh, to, to foreground what I found interesting about the knots, which is the notion of the line. So I tried to remove other elements like color and, you know, all of that. Yeah. And so you envisioned the full project when you started? In a or, flash, or, 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 a light bulb. And, and it was going to be a year? Yeah. Every day? Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Because you don't always hear that, right? You think, well, I started and then I kept going. And then before I knew it, there was this thing. But no, you had this flash moment on January 4th and was part of it that you wanted, you wanted to learn, but you wanted the learning and the process to be the, the art itself? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I started it, I thought of it as a daily commitment and a kind of performative art ritual, right, um, that I would do over the course of a year. But I didn't know that at the end of the year, the, all of the knots would hold together as a single piece. I thought of it as 366 little pieces that I would make in five minutes or 20 minutes each day. But a couple of months into it, as I nailed yet another wall, not to my wall of like growing collection, it started to look really good. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a single piece. And by the end of the year, because 2016 was a leap year, I had 366 knots and it, it really holds together quite beautifully. 
if I may say so myself, I think the work uh, works on several different levels. Yeah, in terms of the individual pieces and as a whole and also kind of telling your story. I mean, on your website, it kind of, you talk about that the journey you were on personally and as an artist is kind of expressed in this in this piece. Exactly. Yeah. So you got amazing attention for this work. Well-deserved. It's such beautiful work. Is a lot of what you have to do now as an artist in promoting your work or promoting your products, how did... How did that come together, kind of the attention that drew around the project and how much of that is kind of your life now as an artist? So um, I've gotten attention from a variety of ways, and I'm happy to share those ways. Like one, you know, along with the light bulb moment of figuring out this project all in a flash, I, as I mentioned, I knew immediately that I would post each knot on Instagram. Um, I think posting... um, whatever kind of work that you do, if you're creative in any way, posting every day is, it's kind of a a best practice that a lot of folks who want to build up followings and build up audiences for their work know about this, right? So you post every day and I had been thinking, gosh, I really should be posting every day. Um, So it occurred to me that this would be a lovely way to do that. And I also think that people like to learn and people like to follow along and knowing that the project had a beginning, a middle and an end. I think it's, it builds up anticipation and excitement, not only in myself, the art but also in the audience. I love watching folks do, um, for example, El Luna's 100 Days Project. Um, I love watching people grow and sharing, you know, what may not be perfect work, but sharing the process is what's the most important thing. So there was no part of you that kind of hesitated to show before you, you said, no, I'm starting and I'm going to, I'm going to show my start. It was an assignment that I gave myself that I was going to make a knot every day. I was going to learn one, make it, take a really good photo, edit that photo, tweak it, you know, using all of the great iPhone apps that we have available now. It was an assignment that I gave myself and I wasn't even scared. And the questions I get asked a lot nowadays are, you know, how can you do that kind of a commitment? That just seems so enormous and scary, but it wasn't. Very quickly, I started to look forward to it every day. And failure kind of wasn't an option for me. Like, I'm too old to fail. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I'm going to take on a new project now, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to make sure it's the right project. I'm going to do my best. So how long was it where you were taking these classes, trying different mediums, and then getting into knots before you kind of posted the first uh, year of year of knots. It was work. about a year of taking okay. classes. Um, when I got into the wood carving, I immediately started carving spoons and making them available for sale and built, um, you know, a small income from that and had several retailers loving my work. Um, but what, where the wood carving is for me now is that I don't make work for sale anymore, but I share the skills. So I teach a class uh, every six weeks in wooden spoon carving, and it's a serious woodworking 101 class. It's mostly women that take it, and I think that's great because, you know, woodworking can be a little bit intimidating, and we as women are encouraged to take up mediums such as wood, And but it's, why not? It's amazing. So the, wood, the woodworking, I mostly share this skill. That's how I keep involved with it. So besides the Instagram following, I mean, the New York Times and Wired and all these amazing places, was there a lot of thought? Is there continuously a lot of thought into how you present and promote and engage with the press as an artist now? I have enjoyed a lot of attention from publications and about half of that has come from 
what I mentioned before, sharing my process, my story, and the project, The Year of Knots, and, and my other work on Instagram. Um, one of the stories that got me a lot of traction was Wired found me. Uh, soon after The Year of Knots was complete, they got in touch with me, and they heard about me through Instagram. It's amazing what wow. Instagram will do. That's awesome. Um, and through that, um, a lot of other publications got in touch. That being said, another thing that I decided to do uh, pretty early on, once I felt that I had work that I was very, very happy with and knew the rest of the world would probably like, had it the opportunity to see it, um, was I asked around and I hired a PR team. I hired a publicist. And at first I was, you know, I have this whole punk rock background. So at first I was like, that's so not fucking punk rock at all. <laughs> like, how dare I hire, like, we're supposed to be suspicious of media and PR and all of that and a, a marketing plan, you know, pff, right, right. Kind of you thing. just want to build an audience, right? like do it yourself, find your people. Yep. Yeah. So, and I was talking to my assistant, Hannah, who is an amazing film and video maker and an amazing musician who's released like six or seven albums, both solo and with bands. And she was like, Wendy, I hire a publicist every time I release a record. Otherwise, how is the world going to know about it? Like you have to, you need professional help to get it out there because there's so much stuff out there now. Yeah. There's a lot of noise. Um, so I asked around and I found a publicist who specialized in the kinds of publications and the kind of work that I make. Um, and it was, a it was, we clicked immediately. And so that's been really successful too. If you have, it's not cheap. Um, but if you have, if you, I believe that if you take your work seriously and you treat it like a business in some ways, it's art, but it's also, you know, my goal is to make a living from this, then getting help is a practical, smart thing to do. And the other thing I was thinking was when I started making art, when I quit my job, I was 46 years old. And when I started making art, I was about 47, 48 years old. I was like, I don't have the luxury of being 22 and, you know, waiting for my work to organically sort of like to catch fire, like have people take notice. You're like, let's get the show on the road. Yeah. I was like, I, my goal is to make a living from this and I need to do it quickly. And wow. so I want my work to be put in front of the editors who um, are going to appreciate it. And this seemed like the most practical way to do that. Yeah. So you are like the epitome of the person I want to have on this show. Um, You went to film school, you worked at and then owned and operated Aquarius Records here in San Francisco for 14 years. You went to Apple, iTunes, the App Store, and now have gone off on your own path. I would love to rewind a little bit and hear about what you were like growing up and what you were into. Were you a little bit more academic minded were you you mentioned like being pretty punk rock growing up like was it music all the way did you think about being an artist when you were a kid I was a growing up my father was in the US army so I was a very good model second generation Chinese American daughter it okay. wasn't until I started feeling like a misfit in high school that I realized feeling like a misfit is way more fun <laughs> <laughs> um so that's when I guess I started rebelling in some ways and just no one in my family had been an artist except for my grandmother and even she hadn't done it full time right it was a hobby so I don't think it was really respected in my family that you would do something creative. So yeah, there were, there were some, some years out there in the wild when I didn't necessarily have the approval of my family. Um, I mean, I never got bad, but. But you were like, when you say you were a misfit, you, you just like, weren't paying too much attention to like your studies in school and, or just kind of doing whatever you wanted, art, music. Like I got really good grades, but my father was like most Chinese fathers would say things like, why don't you just major in engineering or science? 
or law, as if you can just turn on a dime and do that. Right. Okay, dad. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> not when you've been not when you've been raised to be like a true blue American from day one. Um, so I have always tried, I've always been attracted to whatever I thought was the most exciting sort of cultural moment at the time. And for many years, especially in the late eighties and the nineties, that was music for me. The record store was the center of the community. It was where you went to find your next favorite album, make new friends, figure out what show we were all going to go to that night, right? Find your next boyfriend. I mean, it was, we all loved it so much. So I was attracted to record stores and so it made complete sense to me to start working in one when that store, which was located on 24th street in Noe Valley here, when the owner started taking some steps backwards, I said, why don't you sell it to me and I'll move it to the neighborhood where all the artists and musicians already live anyway, which is the mission in San Francisco. Hey guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast and maybe you're feeling inspired to start your own podcast, I'm really excited about a workshop that I'll be teaching at General Assembly in San Francisco called Launching a Successful Podcast. It's got everything you need to know to get up and running and launching a podcast as soon as possible. We go through equipment and recording and styles and formats and editing and marketing and promotion and distribution. So if you're interested in learning more about podcasting, check out the workshop. Go to ga.co backslash SF, scroll down to see all workshops, then scroll down until you get to October 20th and my workshop, How to Launch a Successful Podcast. Sign up. And if you use the offer code MAKINGWAYS at checkout, you'll get 15% off this workshop or any class or workshop at General Assembly at any of their locations across the world. So check it out, and I'm excited to share more of what I've learned with you guys. Okay, let's get back to the show. And so right you know, before, before you got to that time at Aquarius, you came to, you came to San Francisco from Hawaii, in 89 and you went to film school and then i read that one of your your films your thesis film was in sundance in 94 which is amazing <laughs> so before you kind of had this epiphany about yeah wanting to get into the record store business were you thinking about getting into film and how did how did that kind of transition into into working in retail? Yeah, that's a really good question. So yes, I was fascinated with film because I loved watching films, right? And I wanted to make films, but I didn't have a whole lot to say when I was in early, it's kind of a cliche that when you're in film school, you know, the first couple of films that you make are just about yourself. But I didn't really even know who I was at 18 years old. Yeah, I didn't have a lot to say. But I knew that I was really into music and it's what I would do in all my spare time. So at some point, something, it wasn't really a click, like it wasn't conscious for me. But at some point I was like, the thing that I'm really passionate about is the thing that I should be doing for work. Not this thing where I'm like struggling to find something to say. Yeah. But what I realize now, and I just re was able to articulate this like last week as I was thinking about it, is that what was going on for me back then is that I didn't really love the process of making film. They're long drawn out processes. If you want to do it on a larger scale, it's a lot of trying to find money in the beginning, getting the team together. Um, the, the process of the doing, I didn't enjoy very much. What I'm doing now is when I'm nodding every day or when I'm carving wood, I actually love every moment in the process and every stage in the process, not just the result. So when folks ask me, 
for advice about what they should do next, I always say, make sure that you love every part of it and not just how it looks when you're done or how it feels in your hand, not just the result, but love the process itself. That's a clue that you should keep doing it. Yeah. And for the record store, like you said, you love music, you love I the environment everything of it. about it. So you did it for 14 years. I mean, I don't know. Tell me about the experience because like you, I have very loving memories of record stores. I still go to record stores today. When I worked at Sony Music, I got to work with the independent record stores around the country. There were probably some promotions that we like maybe even worked on um, back in the day. But um, and I have awesome memories of Tower Records growing up. Oh yeah. So yeah, what was your what was your experience like running the record store? I loved it so much. And mostly because the the ethos at Aquarius had already been set before I started working there. Aquarius is the oldest independent record store in San Francisco. It was started in 1969, next door to Harvey Milk's camera store in the Castro. Um, Husker Du played an in-store in the back. Um, the Dead Kennedys met through an ad on our bulletin board in the <laughs> 70s. I mean, it was that kind of a record store. Yeah, where historical. We only sold music that we loved and we just ignored and did not sell what we didn't love. And so I continued that ethos, of course. And so if we really got into a band, we would spread the word far and wide and as loud as possible. You know, we would welcome bands to San Francisco and they'd play their first show at an in-store at Aquarius. And years later, the band would be, you know, huge. There was so many groups like that where um, we, I, I think Discovered is probably claiming a little too much, but, you know, where we fell in love with them and then just made as much noise as possible. Bands like Os Mutantes, the Tropicalia band from the 60s in Brazil, we imported hoarded their records from Brazil because we loved them so much. Wow. Oh yeah. I mean, a record store can make a huge difference. Can make a huge difference. Yeah, in absolutely. The yes. In the community. And, and then, you know, that's how it starts for artists, right? It starts in the community and then it starts to build and it can become global phenomenon. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was so wonderful to be doing that. You know, we would review every single record that came through our doors, handwrite the review and like scotch tape it to the cover. <laughs> so, so that other customers coming in would, would have have some information to go on before deciding to purchase it. Yeah. So the next step after, you know, 14 years at Aquarius Records, you go into tech. And I guess, look, there are a lot of similarities in that you were in retail music in the real world. The next step was with Apple, which digital retail music. So there certainly is connective tissue there a lot, but it's a very big leap. It's a very big shift, a very big change. You went on to work at Apple for eight years and you moved to the app store as well and helping to build both those businesses. Couple of questions. One, what was your kind of mindset around taking that leap and moving into tech? And did you think about, did you have self-doubt around the experiences you had had and kind of like making this giant leap? And was there something about working for kind of a big tech company that was both, you know, exciting and you were kind of ready for that change in your lifestyle and your work life? And then, yeah, I'd love to hear just about your your time at Apple. Sure. Well, you know, I left the record store because after 14 years, it was a beautiful, wonderful place to be. And it was my community. But I felt like I had done everything I had set out to do. And there wasn't much more. In the indie music world, I, I like to think that there are like three things that you can do to kind of like really do it, right? You can own a record store. You can be in an awesome band. You can start a great record label, right? So I had done one of those. So I knew that I just kind of wanted, I'm omnivorous when it comes to life. And I just wanted to know how other people live or what other lives are available to us. 
so it was really hard to leave the record store, but I did, and I didn't know what I would wanted, what I wanted to do next. And I took a year off to just kind of do all kinds of things. Wow. I worked on political campaigns here in San Francisco, helping to organize concerts and house parties around political campaigns. Um, again, the cultural capital kind of theme was, yeah. was there. I'm seeing a pattern then, here. There's a little bit of a lack of fear <laughs> in jumping into the unknown and giving yourself the space that you need to figure it out. To figure it out. And then... I, I had actually, it's an, it wasn't that big of a leap to go to Apple because my father had brought home an Apple IIe when I was a sophomore in high school. <laughs> so thank goodness he brought that home instead of any other kind of computer. So I became obsessed with computers quite early on. I mean, this was in the early eighties, yeah. an Apple IIe. And I learned how to program using the basic programming language, okay. that language. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was secretary of my computer cl club at school. And it, it's to my never ending regret that I actually didn't keep on doing that. I think programming is fascinating. Oh, cool. Um, and would love to have been a programmer. That's one world I probably won't be entering, but okay, <laughs> there okay. are many others. Anyway, um, so I had been an Apple freak and had owned every device and all the different models of computers through the years and really um, was a huge fan. I was a huge fan of Apple and, and, and the operating system and how easy it is to use and that attention to detail and the attention to the user experience, um, which just felt so natural and so well thought through and right. So I just looked at the job boards and I saw that iTunes had just recently started and iPod had just recently come out. Yeah. Um, and so that was the connecting factor was music. They, in the early days of iTunes, Apple really needed uh, music experts to yeah. come and help staff this company within a company. Yeah. And then, so you were there and you moved through iTunes, growing yeah. the business and you eventually got into the app store world. Yeah. So I spent eight years at Apple and the first five years were doing various things around product management, um, produce, do, be, being a producer, building and managing a production team all around managing various brands in the iTunes. So iTunes Essentials, which was our version of the mixtape. Uh -huh. We started that and, awesome. and did that together and grew that to many territories around the world. So after five years of handling many aspects of, of growing iTunes, uh, during which we added all of the other rich media types, including iBooks, podcasts, movies, TV, et cetera, um, to make the iTunes store that we know today. Then we opened the App Store. So soon after we opened App Store and had released iPhone, I made the jump over to the editorial team there and helped to build and manage the editorial team. That team is the team that makes decisions about what gets featured on the front page of the store, kind of like a radio programmer in a way. What did you, I don't, what, what's, what's one of your most interesting learnings from your time at Apple? You were there at a critical point in the music business. You were also there at critical points in these products and it's a really big company and a very big shift from kind of the small store you were working in before, just in terms of the number of people and moving parts and teams and politics and all of that. What did you learn about work and, and life from being there? I'm not afraid of big numbers. When you're working on a promotion or some kind of merchandising at iTunes or releasing a new device at Apple that you know is going to be seen and bought and heard by 16 million people or 25 million people, that doesn't faze me anymore. So big numbers are not scary. I think that going wide and going large is uh, is very practical if you're trying to build a business. So that's not scary to me at all. And then secondly, the attention to detail and the attention to stripping down unnecessary details too. And I think that you can see that in my work now, especially with the Year of Knots project, where I removed unnecessary elements like color or texture, 
right? The basic building block elements of art, I was interested in just one of them, the line. So I remove color, remove texture, that kind of thing. At Apple, it was about stripping down the message or the product itself to its essential. There's no need for um, decorative elements when the beauty of iPhone um, or an earbud or something, when the product is beautiful in and of itself, just with the essential elements that are needed to make it work, there's beauty in that, in that simplicity. Yeah, I could see kind of, yeah, like you said, their attention to product and product care and product development and the user experience. I can absolutely see it coming through in your work. And it's really interesting to hear you say that, well, that kind of methodology maybe is getting expressed in the way you put together these knots and present them to the world. So in your career, you've kind of gone up the ladder to these heights and then you've, you know, made shifts and tried new things. When you were ending your time at Apple or, you know, towards the the later part of your career there, were you thinking about, well, maybe I want to just keep going up the ladder here. Maybe I want to go off and start my own music tech startup. What was your thinking around that? And then when did you kind of realize that you wanted to go off on your own and you wanted to pursue this artist's path? even if you weren't sure which road on that path you would choose? I realized, it took me a while to realize it, but after eight years at Apple, I realized that I could summarize my time there at Apple and my time at the record store um, under the theme of, I had been supporting other artists' work for so many years, for basically my two other careers, supporting the work of musicians, photographers, and artists at the record store, um, and then supporting the work of also musicians and artists and media makers and game developers and app designers, supporting other people's work for so long, very happily doing it. There's a part of me that is a natural curator, and I'm always seeking what's new and interesting, and I will never not be hungry for that new stuff. But I realized that I had neglected my own creativity. And by the time I hit my late 40s, I realized it wasn't enough. And I was just feeling this growing desire to make my own stuff. And that's really what it was. It took me a while to be able to articulate that. I didn't know why I left when I left. Do you know what I mean? I just real, I knew that I wanted to move away from the screen and to start making something, but I didn't know what those things would be. I didn't know what form it would take. And you talked about this idea of giving yourself permission. And I've seen you talk about this and write about it. What does that mean for you? And, you know, I know you can't kind of hand someone else confidence or hand someone else, you know, the keys to understanding this. But how do you explain this notion of, you know, whoever you are, giving yourself permission and, and accepting that you can be that title, you can be that career, you can be that maker, and you alone as an individual can unlock that door. You know, we're taught that if you do X, A, B, and C in your life, then you're going to be successful. And I say that with quotes, not knowing what that means, because it's different for everyone. But the way your parents and society teaches you is that you just do A, B, and C, and you're going to be fine. No one's ever going to give you permission to quit your job. Like no one's going to invite you. Your employer isn't going to invite you to quit your job. Your parents aren't going to be like, why don't you just stop with that paycheck thing (laughs) and do something else? So if you're, you know, if we're all brought up to need permission to do things, then you just have to be comfortable with giving it to yourself. And by the time you become a fully functioning adult, you know, it's an adult telling you you're allowed to do it. It's telling the little scared little kid inside of you that you're allowed to do it. Yeah. You're an adult and we're capable of making sensible, practical, smart decisions. 
Yeah. Damn I, it. <laughs> I like that. I like that idea. You're the adult now. You just need to talk to your inner child who's kind of uh, scared. 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 I mean, yeah. I think that that's a huge part of it. People are fearful to make changes in their lives because what if it doesn't go well? You're so worried. What if this happens? What if the worst thing happens? What if the worst case scenario thing happens? And so my advice is to imagine worrying about things is failing in advance and you don't want to fail in advance. That's crazy, right? What you should do is succeed in advance. You should picture yourself succeeding and doing a really good job and then do that. Once you have the picture of it in your mind, just do that. That's great. That's wonderful. And back to the the medium of rope and wood you talked about kind of, you love the feel of it. You love the lines that come out of these knots that you make. I'm curious the, the kind of meditative state you might get into when you're, when you're making these and. Oh yeah. Yeah. What you kind of feel as an artist in the, in the process, cause it seems to be a big part of it is just the ritual. It's the, it's what I talked about earlier in our conversation about, do you love every moment of the doing it? Not every single moment, but do you love the feeling of the doing while you're doing it? Um, do are you familiar with the concept of flow? Yeah. 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 So that's a guiding light for me. If I, if I'm doing an activity and it takes me into the flow state, I know that I should keep doing it. And when I started nodding, I got into, I, I was, I, especially with the year of knots, it, I would make the knot each daily knot the first thing when I got to the studio each day. And it very quickly enabled me to enter the flow state. So it would set a tone for my entire studio session each day. It was so wonderful. For those of your listeners who don't know what flow is, the way I like to describe it is that feeling of working at the very limits of your ability, um, very intensely focused on what you're doing and feeling an intense pleasure from the activity itself. The pleasure is from the doing of the thing. So what is next for you? You had the year of knots. I know there's some still some more excitement and projects coming up there. And you talked about kind of that your your studio is a little little empty, a little lonely right now. What what do you hope months down the road is uh, is filling up your walls and filling up your space there? These days, I'm driven by curiosity. So if I'm curious about a material, um, what would that do? I recently started playing with rawhide and what that does. Rawhide is stiff, um, but if you soak it in water, it softens and then you let it dry and it gets stiff again. So taking knots from the 2D, uh, from wall hangings, let's say, from 2D into 3D and making really beautiful site-specific room size sculptures is something I have actively been doing, but I'm always looking to kind of take it up a notch. Yeah. I'm also writing a book about the year of knots and about that process awesome. and about knotting in general. So That's I'm great. really excited about that. It's going to take a long time to write it. <laughs> um, so it won't be coming out for a while. Wendy, thank you so much for joining the show. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Rob. I wish we had talked more about you because you're so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we're going to get coffee and we'll have, we'll have tons to catch up on more, but I'm wishing you tons of success and I can't wait to see how your curiosity leads you down this kind of artist journey you're on now. So thanks, Rob. Thank you. Okay. That was my conversation with Wendy Chen. Wendy, thank you so much for joining the show and sharing so much of your journey. I hope you guys got a little inspiration, maybe felt that push that you need in order to dive into the next career phase for you or pick up whatever medium of choice you want to be experimenting in and getting going. 
to check out Wendy's work online. It's beautiful. You can explore more of her story there. Please go to windychen.com and that's W-I-N-D-Y-C-H-I-E-N.com. And you can find Wendy on Instagram where she posts really beautiful photos of her work. And it's at Wendy Chen. And again, that's C-H-I-E-N. Making Ways is engineered by Jim Heffernan at TTO Productions. Our intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've got some music by Jim Heffernan in the mix, too. You guys should check out makingways.co. Sign up for our newsletter there. I give a lot of behind-the-scenes added goodness on those newsletters. And, of course, you can find articles and the illustrations I do of each guest on the website, plus show notes, so you can really dive into the episode and learn a ton more. You don't need to be sitting there and taking notes while you're listening to the episode. I've got that covered on the site, so check it out. Of course, we're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Find us on the social medias and say hello. Thanks to our partner, General Assembly. Check out ga.co to find a class near you that might give you the tools you need to start that next great career. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.